everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the second episode of Pine Copper Line, the internet's number one contemporary printmaking podcast. As you'll hear, even though this is the second episode I posted, it was actually the first interview I ever did. Nathan was kind enough to be a guinea pig for me in that way. So you'll hear that I made the mistake of suggesting we do the interview via Skype, but not suggesting that we do it without the video. About halfway through, it finally occurs to me that we'll get better sound quality if we just have the audio. So you'll hear that change and just chalk it up to a young podcaster cutting your teeth. But you're in for a real treat with this interview. Nathan is super smart, super articulate, and has wonderful views about the past, present, and future of printmaking, about community building, and about robot pornography. Here's Nathan. Hello, Miranda. Greetings. Thank you for being my, my first interviewee on the podcast. Happy to be here and talk a little bit about print work. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are to get started, and then we can dive into talking about you and your work and everything else. So. Sure. So I kind of wear three hats. One of them is a teaching hat um, in which I'm a lecturer in the Department of the Arts at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. And the other hat is my art-making hat, um, in which I make art that talks about controversies in science and technology, how technology affects everything from family and food to politics and war. And that practice involves uh, a basis in collage and printmaking, but extends into animation, sculpture, and installation. And then my third hat, my curatorial hat, um, in which I founded and every two years coordinate and curate a screen print biennial. So if you can, I'd love you to tell me the story of how you came to printmaking and how it ended up being sort of an intrinsic part of your practice, but obviously we've heard not the only part of your practice and sort of how that happened and, and how you see it fitting into your, your entire work. I think I am like part of a generation of print people who really took the gig poster as the gateway drug for print work. I'd done a little bit of it as an undergrad at the University of Wisconsin, but then right after I got my undergrad degree, I made the best choice of my life slash worst choice of my life of spending the next year just touring in a band <laughs> and then needing, needing merch to sell. Um, and because like nobody makes money playing really, but what you make money off of is all the stuff you can sell. So printing shirts and making posters, a lot of times you'd sell the posters as sort of like uh, show artifacts. And that gave, got me back into screen printing and something that I started exploring more and more. And then eventually, man, I was kind of a late bloomer in terms of art. I honestly, throughout my whole 20s, took music much more seriously than visual art and performance. And it wasn't until you know I turned late 20s or 30 and I actually started making prints that I was like, oh, I kind of like some of these. And, you know, kept working on them for like, you know, like the 10 years until I was finally like, oh, okay, some now I, I like these and some of them are, are, don't totally suck. And then kept, and then as part of that, going into grad school, 
couple grad schools and getting into the world of print and really enjoying the community of print. And even though, you know, I primarily just do screen print, you know, I've dabbled in relief and letterpress and a, a little monotype. I'm not anywhere near like some sort of master printer, but part of me, sometimes I will do projects that are just print products. So like the most recent project I've been doing, my uh, strangling the fascist Viper has been all large, fairly large format screen prints, but that's kind of uh, the exception where usually I'll do some sort of sculpture and animation as well. I think one of the things you said about the community around printmaking is why I think a lot of people kind of, they, they may come for the aesthetic and stay for the community sometimes. Man, I don't know how many people I talk to in other medias, like painters, and they're like, oh man, I'm so jealous. You printmakers like have all the parties. You have SGC. They just would kill for it. I, you know, maybe ceramicists have something yeah. somewhat similar. And like there are photography conferences, but then they have the whole bifurcation between like commercial photography and fine art photography. We're really lucky, and uh, we have something that's definitely catalyst for lots of ideas. Do you think that's because it's it has this studio as a communal space? So it sort of draws personalities who do like to interact as they work? That's a really good question. You know, obviously part of the answer is yes. But then a part of me is thinking about, oh, I think I, I've known printmakers who are total misanthropes as well and like did have their own little press and work independently. But I think it's, it's working with each other. And then the fact that there's a community of like the master printers, people who just really like printing other people's work. And I went through a period where man, I mean, every year I'd print one edition for someone else just because it was somebody's art I was really amped up about. And even though like it's more stressful printing other people's work, it was something I was excited about. So yeah, it's kind of, there's that, there's that communal and it doesn't help to work in private, I don't think, mm. in this discipline. Mm. That's interesting. Do you think that that's specific to printmaking, that it doesn't help to work in private or just maybe generally for art practice? I, I'm sure there's some people who like holding up and being individual, but I'm sure with the ceramicist, it helps to have a shop of people. I think if we, as we get away from the traditional concept of like the lone genius making right. art by themselves and realizing like projects take groups of people, you know, I'm in this performance music project now and there's like four other people. Most good things come from collaborative help and people working together. So mm -hmm. for making kind of like is, was perhaps into the 21st century quicker than other media where they saw the writing on the wall, well, they've always just worked as this collaborative media and other media artists may be catching up. Yeah, I think that as I see text and sort of theories about art that really are interested in destabilizing that idea of the lone genius, as you say, or even mm -hmm. the sense of, of authorship as something that can come from a vacuum, Printmaking seems to kind of, as you say, fill this space of, well, we've been there all along. We've known that. It's like, did the death of the author start with Albert Dürer? Yeah, which is interesting because as I'm just thinking about it as a, as a print nerd historian, you know, Dürer was one of the first people in the world to sort of take a copyright case because his work was so oh, popular that. that people were imitating his signature you know, the famous sort of uh -huh. AD. So they would make work in his style 
And then they would also basically sign it as him to try and sell the work because he was he was well known and and there was a market for yeah. his prints. He took um, he took a case to a high court in Venice, I believe, uh, and he lost. So he was he was at a time when that that idea of authorship at least maybe in the context of printmaking, wasn't quite there yet. So they're like Italian printmakers who are ripping them off? Is that why I went to Venice? I think so. This is this is drawing back to, mm. you know, one thing in graduate school, I'll have to maybe look it up again. But in the 16th century, as, you know, um, I think as still contemporary art history reflects that, it seems that there was the belief that the Northern work was somehow lesser, less refined than yeah. than than the what was going on in what is now Italy, and so there was this. Generally speaking, people in the north trying to imitate people in the south, but it was a little bit different with Jure because he was so well known and so beloved in his own time. You would get people in the south trying to sort of be like him, get that sense of the bodies <laughs> that he could do that were so great. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I also wanted to, you know, talk a little bit more about what you said was your your curatorial hat, um, this sort of the screen print biennial. You know, I'd love to hear the story of of how that came to be as well. Sure, sure. So do you know Richard Noyce? He's like this uh, uh, English art historian. And so Richard Noyce was giving this talk at the impact that was in Dundee, Scotland. I forget what year that was, like 2013, maybe. Anyway, he's giving some talk. I'm attending it. He's a really good speaker. He's really passionate, really into print and political prints. And he mentions this sort of offhanded, off the cuff. I'm just going to make this up. It was like some experimental aquatint biennial in you know some East, East European country, you know Latvia, back in 1973. Like just something pretty obscure. And, it was, and he talked about it as a biennial. And I was like, oh, boy, that's interesting. So I, I, to that point, I thought, wow, well, is there a screen print biennial? There mm-hmm. must be. So you know, I started looking it up right away and couldn't find anything. I found, like, in Japan, they have a mesh tech screen print biennial, which mesh tech apparently is some company that makes screen print materials. And it's just Japan. It's kind of weird. It's, everything's like, really small. And there was no, there was no North American, South American. There's no uh, Western Hemisphere screamer by any of I decided, well, there should be. And so I decided to start one. And then just really just kind of went for it. It was kind of past the grant cycles. For that year, so well, first of all, like I had to find a venue. Like I'm in upstate New York, so I just found uh, there's this, an art center here in the Capital Region that is like a nice gallery space. I approached them, and like, oh, they were they were fine giving me the gallery for this fall season, and then but like I had no money whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So and it was too late to get grants, so I did a super foolish thing and I decided to start a Kickstarter to raise money for a catalog and to pay for things and it was successful but it's a total fucking drag it's a terrible idea but it was successful gave enough money to pay for a catalog and pay for to get some help no I didn't pay for an installer it was purely just for a catalog that first biennial was an invitational and it was 
inviting half the people I kind of knew and the other half people I wanted to know or some other, you know, I kind of had a couple of trusted people. I was like, who would you invite to this? And got a big pool of people and reviewed information. And then when I invited people and then they found out I sent them a Kickstarter, all these people started offering to send me printed stuff to give away as reward. Tim Dooley and Aaron Wilson like gave me a bunch of stuff and John Hitchcock and Florence Giddes and like all these people started just like sending me piles of stuff that I could be giving away to Kickstarter rewards. So it was super successful. Got money and then uh, yeah, mounted the got a bunch of volunteers because again I couldn't pay people to help install. So got but I had like a group of community volunteers and like I decided my next door to my studio at the time was a little gallery space, very DIY. And we had a, like a little pop-up show of a SUNY Albany printmaking grad student had a had pop-up show there. Uh, oh, and there's like even like another space, like the the kind of the boutique risograph screen print uh, stationery shop. We're like, oh, well, you can put stuff up here too. So we had like a student show there. So it was actually like a citywide sort of thing that first year. And uh, we just documented the hell out of it so we could put together good grant writing for the next biennial. That's super smart. You know, I didn't realize that, that the, because I know that we talked about that you've gotten some nice grants to do this, mm-hmm. but to, to kind of rely on community the first go, so then you really have something meaty to show grant panels is quite a nice way to do things. And then that way you don't have to kind of rely on wearing out the kindness of strangers, Right. Because you do it the yeah. first year, people are going to be really excited. You're doing it in two years' time. They're like, oh, I kind of gave to this last year. You know, there's, there's, you're going to probably not get as much resistance just because of the novelty wearing off. Yeah, the, the like the one person who was actually like a trained installer, who she donated her time the first biennial. By the second one, I was able to pay her for a week of work. So, Wonderful. you know, they definitely tried try to make a payoff for people. And yeah, I think it's like those grant agencies, you know, so two years in a row I've gotten lucky enough to uh, receive grants from the International Fine Art Print Dealers Association. And, you know, I think a lot of grant apps, they have a little section for your supplemental material, which mm-hmm. can be kind of whatever. And then it's all like the photos that, you know, I had like the students taking and video stills and links to, you know, YouTube videos. And I think, yeah, I think all this stuff helps to, show that you can actually pull off a project because I think a lot of people don't want to give you money if if you haven't done it before. Right. It came to be through basically just making it happen, you know, seeing a need and then being willing to put in the hours and being willing to just put in the asks to make something happen. Yeah, there's something, the, the first one is definitely really punk rock in terms of just doing it yourself. And, you know, I live in this post-industrial town where it's easy to get spaces and there's sort of an ethos of doing it yourself. And in the second biennial, 2016, wasn't any big step up. We had money, but it was at, you know, like this art center and then this other gallery, which was, which was nice, but it was still a lot of, you know, relying on volunteers and people like uh, Terry James Conrad, who's now over at Iowa, like working like a boss to help me install. And a lot of people still volunteering and, you know, finally, it's gotten to the point where it's, you know, it's going to be hosted by this endowed gallery and some more things are paid for. But it's certainly it's a labor of love. This is oh, all yeah. I'm just doing it because this is what I this is the this is the art show that I want to see that no one else is doing right now. Mm, 
I love that, that idea of making something because that's what you want to consume. That was definitely part of when I decided to start Pine Copper Lime is I kept thinking, why isn't there just a cool website where when I'm on the bus, I can go to it and I can just read about something interesting in printmaking that I hadn't heard about before. And no one else, no one else is doing it. No one else so. is doing it. Um, we need you, Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so... There was something else that I wanted to talk to you about because you mentioned your location as being a place that helped make the Screen Print Brian L successful just in terms of mm -hmm. space. So being, um, do, you, do you mind if the people know the name of your town? <laughs> sure, sure. I'm in the, uh, the post-industrial city of Troy, New York, which up, up and through, if I have the history right, through the 18th century was vying with New York City to be the uh, largest populous area on the East Coast and the shipping capital of the East Coast and then lost to New York City. Mm -hmm. um, but had, it was kind of like a rich steel town throughout the 19th century and shipping town. And our, there's a huge whaling industry just south of us in Hudson, New York. But now it's, you know, it's very much an economically depressed area where there's a lot of empty buildings. You can get cheap studio spaces somewhat. And it is what you make of it. Mm -hmm. um, but and also things don't come here. So if I want to see my print friends, you know, because we talked about the community, you can try to do something in which I get my friends to come to me, which is also like a byproduct of the Screaming Biennial that I didn't intend on, but really ended up happening where we have a symposium like that coincides um, like the day after the opening receptions. And then we usually have a round table and maybe a keynote and other activities. And we've been really lucky. There's always like a dozen printmakers from all over the country that usually come to Troy and we do activities and hang out. And it's like a little mini conference and it's really rewarding and fulfilling. I think that that's such a important part of building the community that we were talking about too, is that we are a community of people who really don't mind doing it ourselves when that's necessary. Sort of, you know, being someone with a, a creative practice and, you know, and in, you know, a smaller, smaller city, a city that maybe doesn't have a lot of resources, I feel like there's a lot of printmakers out there who are in the same boat because a lot of us are in academia in some way. And so we end up going to where the jobs are. Yeah. And so you have people like, you know, far west of the country and in small cities, but then they do things like the, and I only remember it as the name that I tease Kevin Haas with the, uh, <laughs> like ro <laughs> called the Rocky mountain print militia, but I think it's Rocky mountain print Alliance. I think it's, and they have yeah. like, and they have like several days of programming and they do all the cool stuff for people that are in that region. And a couple of people just started. I think Justin Diggle has been heavily involved in that, who is, you know, at the University of uh, uh, Utah at Salt Lake City. So people build it. I think people, maybe it's because printmakers were so used to being on the fringe anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, we're so, you know, when I go to Chelsea, I see prints everywhere, but they're always labeled as paintings mm -hmm. or, you know, anything besides what actual print they are. Um, and so we're so used to being on the margins anyway, then we've just made up little base camps along that those margins and claimed it for our own, I think. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, so sort of speaking of being on the margins, having your practice based in screen print and having a screen print biennial, which really does show people who are pushing the boundary of work, people who are just technically really amazing, um, was part of that motivation for doing that to maybe carve out some legitimacy for screen printing, which 
maybe sometimes even, and you know, not to offend, but maybe sometimes with even no, sure. within the printmaking community might be a little bit on the margin of that as well, you know, in the sense that people do oh. have that, as you say, band poster, t-shirt, you know, association with it. <laughs> I have a good friend, a <laughs> lithographer who I won't name, and I, he does it sort of jokingly, but has described screen printing as the mac and cheese of printmaking. It's gooey and easy and everyone loves it. And there's a certain truth to that. You know, like the learning curve isn't that hard to get basic ink through a matrix onto paper or substrate. But uh, yeah, part of it was uh, that screen printing is, I think, there, there's a good argument that screen printing is more hybrid than other art forms, that it really works well for installation because of its immediacy in sculpture, because you can print on this variety of substrates. But that's not totally true because there's great artists. Um, do you, have you heard of Mizen Shin? So, you know, her her own work is like, you know, amazing and she will make sculpture and when some of the some of screen print, but uh, she has these giant relief prints that she's made into wallpaper for installations that come from vector graphics. So she's kind of like she totally debunks that argument. I think that a lot of print is very hybrid like. And my goal was just to show that all the stuff that's going on in the art world right now that is already print, just trying to claim a little bit of that and take some credit for that and say, you know, what you're seeing in these galleries, people that are working as assistants for other people or just, you know, artists that are using printmaking, um, let's claim it. So when you, you know, there's great people, and I'm not saying uh, he hasn't, like, pushed out printmaking, but, like, there's great people like Hank Willis Thompson, uh, who does all these great prints of the Lower East, Price, Lower East Side print shop. But you read about him, and the, the first thing I bring up probably is photography. When I think he's yeah. made some amazing prints um, that are really experimental um, and kind of couched in a social practice. So I'm just, with hybrid, I'm just trying to kind of show off what screen print can do. And it could, you know, the only reason it's not just print in general is because I decided to start with screen print because mm. that's what I know. And there are other print biennales of all sorts, but just no screen print so far. Yeah, definitely. And and I think it's, you know, at least from my my perception, I think it's, it's done that job in, in the sense that it exists as a marker of sort of where printmakers are with this particular niche within our niche and seeing that really high quality work collected in one place. You can't deny that within that exists a well of of great artistic talent. So I think it's it's great that it's there and it's doing its job. Well, thanks. Yeah, I've you know, that's that's the goal. That's the dream. So let's see. So we've talked a lot about the the screen print biennial and a little bit about your practice as well. I'm just sort of thinking about, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been curious to ask artists when they come on is if there's anything that they never do get asked that they wish they were. Is there any sort of aspect about their work or their practice people seem to miss? And, you know, kind of just to give them a sense of like now is you can talk about that. Wow, uh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> what do I wish people would think about? Um, kind of wish we could come back to this question, but yeah. uh, I don't know if I've, I don't have a good answer for that, Miranda. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm kind of drawing a blank right now. As no, to, no, uh, that's 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 fine. It's I've I've tried asking a couple other artists just in conversation, and it seems to be uh, a difficult question. 
um, which I think yeah. is interesting because maybe so much of how people talk about their practice and, and even really form almost their own ideas about their practice is in conversation with other people. And so, you know, to sort of be asked anything outside of that is is a little bit tricky yeah yeah like you're 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 asking me to step outside of myself almost and and look in like an astral projection Mm -hmm. um i think for me so maybe i could i could flip this and the the question there's something something i mentioned that i don't get to talk about enough is the struggle between and I bring this up to other artists all the time. In fact, when we've had Scream It Biennial Symposiums, I'll, I'll make this a question sometimes, is, you know, what is your obligation to be political? How do you situ- yeah. situate yourself in the world of political prints? Because printmakers talk about this all the time. And I think it's just so hard to make good political work. And I don't, I think I fail a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I would like to know how to do, how to do that better. But so that's not something I really want someone to ask me because it's about my failures. Right. Um, but that's a, that's a conversation. If I was like, if I was going to ask someone, I would ask that, like, how is that done? Mm-hmm. It's just some people who are, you know, Josh McPhee is, is wonderful at it. And in Anatolia totally of the different media, um, Paolo Perticini, who's like, does political video games at Carnegie Mellon has this great kind of thought that, you know, the lowest hanging fruit of political art is just to make art about politics where the mm. goal should be to have art that is involved in politics. So maybe you can speak to a little bit though, you know, cause uh, your work, your, your work is, is political and, and has the sense of narrative and message. Do you really feel sort of, you know, an obligation to be political and and do you are you like well if I you know if I really had my way and if things were going well in the world I'd go make landscapes but you know <laughs> I do feel this this need to do it or sort of maybe just speak to that a little bit yeah um I'm gonna bring up Josh McPhee again um because one time he asked me for his uh, paper politics show uh why I made why I even made prints in the digital world and I said well we live in a world with bodies and as long as we have bodies, we will want to have the physical artifact to reflect against or something to that effect. And so then I'm going to kind of take a version of that and say we live in a political world. And as long as political forces of you know patriarchy and statecraft and colonialism and state-sponsored violence and incarceration and all those other things happen, we have to react against all that. If you don't react against it, um, and I'm also this is also this is a great little bit from uh, the Josh McPhee's Signal magazine that he co-edits, and their mission statement is something like uh, everything we do, and I'm just totally paraphrasing, probably poorly, and Josh, I apologize, um, but they, it's something like everything you know, all art is created in an environment in which this, if you are the status quo, you're basically making art in a situation of patriarchy, violence, all these other things, unless you make a like decisive idea and decision to work against that. And you can. And mm-hmm. I think as artists, we live in this world that's terrible. And thus, as long as it is, we and I will make an attempt to make art that responds to that. Yeah, that's that's really great. And that actually kind of speaks to something that's really been present in my mind in the last two months since moving to Australia. One of the main questions that we get here by Australians or really anyone is, do you think you're going to go back? Mm. Meaning go back to America. 
And yeah. that's tricky because I, as I receive information coming out of the States, just have you know the growing dumpster fire vision in my head. And yes. that's really difficult. You know, at the same time, I became an aunt last week. You know, my brother and sister-in-law had a baby and she just represents this life. And you get this really sudden sense of what am I going to do to make that life okay? So if everybody just leaves and doesn't push back and just sort of walks away and comes and stays in, in sunny Sydney with the beaches and the socialized healthcare, what, what really happens to America? And what, what obligation do I have as an American? You know, I think that people uh, can be glib about that identity, maybe more so than other countries even. But I was, I was born there and my, my family, you know, the colonizers that they are, they've been there for, for a few generations at least. And what is that obligation to go back and try and make it better, whether it's through making political work or creating resources in the arts or anything like that? And it's, it's sort of refreshing to hear your take on it and, and nice to hear that's just, no, like I'm, I'm here and this is my obligation and I'm, I'm stepping up to it. And that it is a significant act, even if it seems you, it's so easy to get disenchanted and feel extremely disempowered and start to feel kind of hopeless. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's even beyond the world of printmaking, there's, you know, I didn't think just as artists, people have many ways to make a better world. Like for three years, I had a free after school arts program that was also grant funded for kids in an underserved neighborhood at this old community center. And with the mission of basically let's. You know, like, you know, like the sweet art classes kids can have at the, you know, at the art center that's downtown, which costs a lot of money. Well, this is the same sort of instruction, but like every kid can get it. And we had a really diverse outpouring of kids. And like the last season, we had like a good part of the season. Like, man, there's a great group of kids that very much like represented the future, what the future is going to look like. And it was very inspiring just knowing like mm. okay it's not all bad uh because you know the reason that there's a lot of people ticked off reactionary aging and not so aging white dudes that are really angry is they don't like the, the new face of what the country is going to be like and as artists we can help by reaching out to everyone and trying to welcome kind of the next generation mm. yeah that's super significant i love that and so kind of thinking about that sort of as it relates to the aesthetics in your own practice. The the bodies that you use are robot bodies. The sentient beings who are who are being affected in the world that you create um, are ageless, classless, genderless. Was that sort of a conscious decision in in your in your way, or does it have to do with maybe a, a dystopian future that you're more interested in that can be kind of a warning? Sure, sure. It's definitely I, the the attempt to. Of- put everything through a lens of 21st century technology. So we talk, you know, I have images talking about agriculture and it's robot cows or a robot farmer or I'm showing war and I'm really amping up the technology is used. And, you know, lately all of the prints I've been making are digging through the archives of, of the New Masses, which is this great hyper lefty anarchist publication that's out in New York City from early 20s into the mid 30s, is if I, at least what I've been digging through. And, you know, there there's like lots of William Gropper illustrations and, and people working in that kind of genre of like highly political figurative 
drawings and lithographs and trying to make work that responds to those works. And but then like thinking like, well, what are this what are this going to look like now to the 21st century? So the idea of, you know, I mean, you know, this is great William Gropper illustration of a giant hand and kind of if I, like it's kind of holding up against like, you know, old World War One era tanks and biplanes. And I've made this giant robot hand with repelling, you know, contemporary tanks and drone pilots and trying to re-envision those through contemporary lens. And so, you know, I've been looking at recently I'm working on this project. Some of this uh, exchange portfolio in which artists have been asked to respond to uh, various works by Kathy Colwitz. And so looking at that work and how great she was with the figure. And now I'm trying to translate, you know, some images and some of those concepts into robot figures. But, yeah, they're, they're fairly genderless. Um, sometimes they're not human. I have octopi, mm-hmm. uh, pigs. And, and this idea of like just that's how I want to make a world through this lens of technology. Yeah, I watched um, the motherboard video. Nah, uh, which, my robot porno. Yeah, the robot porno, that. which is great fun. Um, I highly recommend it. As I'm as I'm watching it, you know, you've got the two stars of it, and you're sort of trying to ask yourself, okay, which one's the male and which one's the female? Mm-hmm. It's not entirely easy to figure that out. Um, yeah, and in my mind, there, there was a gender. One was gendered one way, one was the other. But I, I ended up showing them to many people, and it was different from my intent. So I just rolled with it. So you really can't tell. You know, their sex is revealed at at some point, but. Yeah, it ends up being a, a piece about gender and not totally intentional, but I like the fact that that's how it's read. Right. Well, that's such a huge part of the creative act is that so much of it takes place internally. And that's one half of a of a creation's life. And then the sure. other one, of course, is in its reception, where that conversation between creation and receiver or object and viewer really creates the meaning insofar as an object can, can have like one defined meaning, which is super fascinating, I think, about the creative process. I realize we're, we're coming up on an hour mark, so. Yeah, nobody wants to listen to me that long as <laughs> is, so. I would love for you to mm-hmm. tell people where they can find more about you and okay. get in touch. Okay, everyone, uh, thanks for listening. And you can find links to everything at nathanmeltz.com. You'll see links to, to the Screenprint Biennial, which brings you to screenprintbiennial.org, which for those of you who are art teachers, uh, I've, I've heard it's a pretty good uh, resource for teaching stuff. And uh, through my website, you can find links to my SoundCloud page. And, you know, it, it's all there, nathanmeltz.com. Um, and thanks for listening. I will put all of that in links in the show notes as well, so you can find it that way. Awesome. And uh, thank you again, Nathan. Well, Miranda, thank you so much. This is fun. All right. Thank you. Thank you.